Hello, welcome to Charity Chat. I'm your host, Samuel Davies. In this episode, we speak to friend of the show, Deborah Alcock-Tyler, about her new book, It's a Battle on the Board. We find out more about the types of conflict between the trustees that make up a board and challenges faced in the relationships between trustees and CEOs and their executive teams. Best practice for the governance of charities seems more vital than ever. If you're sailing into stormy seas, you need a captain and crew that not only know what they're doing, but also have the fortitude and courage that comes from trusting each other and working together. And these are certainly stormy seas we all find ourselves in. I really love speaking with Deborah, whose passion for our sector and the work that we all do is punctuated with good humour and clear, no-nonsense rhetoric that is both refreshing and encouraging. This episode is brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Charity People. So it's my pleasure then to introduce my conversation with Deborah Alcock-Tyler about the battle on the board. I'm delighted to be joined by friend of the show, Deborah Alcock-Tyler, CEO of the Directory of Social Change, trustee and author. Deborah, welcome back to Charity Chats. Hi, Sam. Lovely to see you again. I'm really, really happy to be back. Be nicer if we were doing it face to face, obviously, but, you know, Zoom hell, we've all got used to now, haven't we? Absolutely. And I guess we don't know where we're at in terms of the pandemic, but uh, it's been a few months since we last spoke. Life continues things are very busy for you I know also you've been you've been writing books as I know you've been doing for a number of years and you've written a great book that I I myself have very much enjoyed it's a battle on the board the no fibbing guide for trustees I've got a copy here it's proof it's quite well leafed through book I bought a couple um for friends and colleagues at Christmas as well so um yeah well I've really enjoyed it and I mean, I find it is, it's entertaining, but it's also very clear and concise in terms of outlining the types of board behaviours. You talk about these personifications of uh, good and bad trustee characteristics, I suppose, the aces and the dashes. Yeah, I think it's really, really, really important. And I, I've, I've found it very entertaining, as I say. Who do you hope will buy this book and what progress do you hope it will make for the charity sector? Oh, well, I hope it'll be bought by trustees, obviously. I think that the, the very interesting thing about it is, of course, is that we have a very interesting, very skewed profile in, in charity boards. Um, I forget the data now. I think I've got it somewhere in the book. But I think something like 70% of uh, of uh, charity trustees are white, they're male, they're over 60. You know, it's, so it's, it's slightly skewed. And that's not to say that white men over 60 aren't brilliant trustees, because many of them are, but it's a little bit skewed. And I'm hoping, and also the ways in which they very often learned governance is from a particular sort of background, a particular angle. And this is really about sort of, you know, trying to get the point across that that lots of trustee shipping now isn't about the kind of formal ticking off the box or doing your AGM and you know you know madam chairman or mr chairman may i refer you to clause 7.2 do you know that that world has changed so much and that an awful lot of what goes wrong with boards starts at the level of trustees relationships and how they deal with and engage with each other so so i'm hoping all trustees obviously i mean everybody hopes all trustees but really it's about getting to those trustees who are conscious that they're not perhaps being as good as they could be or they want to be better and this book is going to help them to be better. I mean the key thing about it is not particularly technical. 
you know, I sure. touch on some of the regulatory issues, of course, and, I, and there's a whole chapter on finance, which, you know, we'll talk about separately, but it's a real issue for many trustees actually not understanding charity finance, but really is very much about how do you govern effectively an organisation that's full of human beings, whether they're staff, volunteers or fellow trustees. And I guess that was one thing that I, I took a lot from in, in your book, the the psychology of it, how people interact and it is very very complex isn't it those human relationships and navigating that whether you're a trustee or a ceo of a charity sounds like the kind of the fundamental challenge of, of uh, a board yes it's so difficult you got, the, the thing about it is is that when you're working in an organization you, you have the same relationship issues as you do as a trustee but the difference is is that you're seeing people every day or at least every week. So you have an opportunity to get to know people, to understand their little quirks. Sure. You know that, for example, on Monday, Sam's tends, Sam tends to be a bit stroppy because there's a good chance his football team lost at the weekend or something. <laughs> you know, you know, for example, that by Wednesday, Deborah's a bit of a bitch in the afternoon, you're best to avoid her, you know, because she hasn't had lunch or what have you, you know. So you get to learn how to deal with people and what works with them and how to talk to them and where they're coming from. And all of that eases work relationships and makes work better and more effective because you know yeah. how to get your message across, how to persuade people to do things, how to get work done. Trustees tend to meet each other very rarely. You know, it tends to be, I don't know, four, five times a year, maybe for a few hours, not including subcommittees, mm -hmm. you know, so, so you're, you're probably hanging out as a whole board, maybe for 12 hours in a whole year. You're not going to be able to create the kind of relationships that you need to create in that time in order to understand where people are coming from. You know, reading a book like this, I hope it's going to remind people that the relationships matter just as much, even if you're not seeing them. In fact, more, if anything, you have to be more alert to human behaviour and motivations and, and touch points and things like that because you see them so um, infrequently. And I suppose we, we touched on it just now, the diversity issues among charity boards. There's this uh, taken on trust research carried out by the Charity Commission where they said 88% of trustees are non-white compared with 14% of the UK population. And as you said, 70% of trustees are men, uh, median age of 61 years old. How important is it for boards to change how they recruit new trustees? It couldn't be more important, Sam. And the reason being, again, it's a little, you know, charity governance is kind of still kind of clings a little bit onto that sort of Victorian patriarchal notion of doing unto others. You know, so we as a clever, educated group of people come together and we look at I mean, for good cause. So I'm not saying that people don't genuinely care about whatever the cause is that they're a trustee of. But, you know, because they really desperately do want to help. But it's that sort of doing unto others and that we know better and that, you know, we've got professional backgrounds and all the rest of it. And what happens is we then, we, you know, you then end up with boards that are absolutely not properly understanding the needs of the people they're serving, the communities they serve, the beneficiaries or, or other sort of groups. So just even thinking about diversity from the point of view of just having beneficiaries on your board. I mean, nobody expects a charity in North Wales to have lots of, you know, aged people of, people of colour on it because there are not very many people of colour in South Wales, North Wales. That's, of course... That's a whole different podcast. You can argue about why that is another time. But nobody expects that. But what we do sure. expect is your board will be reflective of the community you're trying to serve in some way, shape or form. It's funny because I had this discussion just very recently with a colleague, you know, on a, on a entirely different um, board. But we were talking we were talking about how they could um, engage external, you know, sort of more, be more diverse, more inclusive into the, the uh, community group. And, you know, one of, one of these particular trustees said, oh, you know, said yeah but obviously they'll need extra help 
you know, because, you know, it, it's complicated running a, an organization or, you know, reading accounts. And I'm like, you know, these people are just as good as we are. Mm. There's no way that they're not as capable. Like when you first came into this charity sector, you didn't understand how to read charity accounts. You had to learn. So will they. It's like, you know, so we have to get over this sort of thing is that somehow we're better place, you know, and you often hear actually about we need a mentoring program for, you know, you trust you do anyway to be honest but it's the sort of thing we need it for those who come from the beneficiary group or from the local community you know we don't need it for you know a, a, a wealthy bank manager you know what sure, i mean so sure. yeah but more importantly than that is if you're genuinely committed genuinely committed to the cause you want to serve why on earth wouldn't you engage the people who you're serving in sitting on your board and helping you to make those decisions i mean it doesn't make sense not to well i guess i mean that also speaks to the point you make in your book that in some cases, the, the worst traits of a trustee are to come into an organisation thinking, I know how to do all of this because yeah. I've got expertise in this other area of business yeah. or something like that. So I guess it means it's the, it's the takeaway there that every trustee needs to be coming into an organisation with a view to learning. And therefore, that barrier of you know not uh, recruiting this group of people because they don't have that knowledge beforehand is then taken away. Yeah, completely. I mean, it's, the, it's this notion that anyway, as a trustee, you would know, because even if you're an expert in, let's say, the medical condition that the charity set up for, you're not an expert in running a charity's finances or fundraising or engaging volunteers or, you know, put, putting together a formal case to get a piece of law changed. Sure. You know, so even if you do come in with a very specific piece of expertise that you might know more than the charity staff do, you're definitely not going to know how to run a charity. And, and it, you know, it really, really frustrates me when we talk about the fact that you know, the, 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 um, our job as trustees is to guide and advise our chief executive, because like, how can you? You don't know the work of the charity. It's, it's more, it's the job of the executive and the charity staff to guide and advise you so you make better decisions at strategic level. I mean, I talk in the book, Sam, about the nanny and the parent. Yeah. I don't know if you remember that analogy, but I think that's quite a handy one. You know, and, and so the analogy is that the nanny is like the charity staff. So, so parents have a child, and for whatever reason, they can't look after the child themselves during the day. So at seven o'clock, they hand the child over to a nanny and they fetch it back at seven in the evening. So the nanny has the child for the whole of the day and most of its waking hours. The, the nanny is the expert in the child because the parents are not with the child during that time, so they don't see what happens. So no amount of the parents saying, the child must have quinoa at 12 o'clock every day and then learn the food. Well, I don't think anybody should be forced to have quinoa, to be perfectly honest. It's the food of the devil, second only to aubergines. But anyway, credit that one side. The nanny knows that there's not a cat in hell's chance that kid is going to eat quinoa or play the flute. Mm. You know, and so no amount of the trustees forcing that on the nanny and saying you're failing nanny is going to help. So the job of the nanny is to say to the, you know, to the parents, look, Quinoa doesn't go down well, but couscous works. And, you know, he can't stand the flu. He'll have a go at the guitar. Do you know, in other words, it's yeah. their job to guide and advise the parents. The, so the parents need to remember they're not the expert in the child, just like the charity, the trustees need to remember they're not the experts in the charity. But then also it works the other way too. So chief executives need to remember that it's not their baby. You know, it's not their baby and they don't have the right to make the long-term strategic decisions about what should happen to the baby. Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah. As chief executive of DSC, it's my job to guide and advise my board, to give them information, to present options to them, to tell them what I think is the best route forward. It's then their job to decide mm. and my job to implement what they decide. And it's the, and it's the same, you know, because obviously I'm a trustee myself as well. As a trustee, I fully expect my team to come to me and say, you know, at the trust char charities I'm a trustee of, here are the options. Here's what we think we should do. Here's why. We then have to ask the right questions to test their thinking. 
Because yeah. even I also think this term like we need to challenge our staff. Challenge is such an aggressive word. It's more like testing their thinking. Oh, so that's interesting. Why did you come to that conclusion? What's the evidence for that? Okay, I get that. And so that we can then make a decision. I guess before when we spoke back on, uh, I think it was episode 88 of the podcast, we talked about trustees and, and you talked about the fact that, you know, you, as a as a chief exec of a charity, but also as a trustee, you know, you see the value of bringing people onto the board that are uh, chief executives and uh, and that it also it serves them as a chief executive to understand how the board thinks, you know, from their own lived experience and firsthand experience too. Yeah, completely. I mean, I don't, I definitely don't think board should be stuffed full of chief executives of various things, you know. What I do think is if you're a chief executive and you're not a trustee, you're doing yourself, your organisation, and in fact the sector a disservice because I am definitely a better chief executive because I know what it's like to be a trustee. It's a power thing you see, Sam. We often forget. So the trustees very, trustees very often feel powerless because they're not actually running the organisation, they're leading it remotely. Mm. So they're asking questions and they're testing, but they're not there every day making sure stuff happens. And the chief executive, executive staff often feel powerless because they think all the power and the decision-making lies with the trustees. If we both come at it understanding that we both feel powerless, it makes for a much, much, much better and more constructive relationship. And especially, if, you know, if I as a trustee, I, I as a chief executive, we understand that, Sometimes when my trustees are being an absolute pain in the backside, it's because they feel powerless, because they don't feel informed, because they are concerned about their accountability. And, and vice versa, of course, as trustees, if you find your chief executive being really defensive and a bit difficult, you just need to consider that maybe he or she is feeling a bit powerless and perhaps a little bit like you're not really listening to them or they're not being, being given the right space. And if you come at it from that angle, you can't help but to have a powerful board. reading a lot of american uh non-for-profit blogs and one of my favorites is the non-profit af and yeah, um, i love that it's love really good it. i mean partly because of all the pictures of cute animals as well but it, it yeah. helps to kind of uh, to to absorb a lot of the information there which is very good i you know in the past i've heard this uh, mantra for boards i think it's more of an american thing but the um in terms of the the um kind of prerequisite for a, uh, a trustee is to give get on or get off either you give money you get somebody on that can give money or you're off the board we don't seem to have yeah. that in the uk but in this in a recent blog from Nonprofit af um the author wrote about the dangers of focusing on 100 percent board giving i suppose that idea that charity boards are also giving to the charity in terms of money um is this something that you think boards should do as a rule or shouldn't do as a rule? Absolutely never. No, not. And I, I cannot stress this enough. I mean, and I've changed my mind about this. You know, 20 odd years ago, I would have felt differently. I don't feel like that anymore because I've learned. If you require trustees to give, you exclude most of the population from ever, ever sitting on your board. Yeah. You certainly exclude those who, are, you know, if you're if you're working, for example, with very vulnerable people or people working in poverty, they can't possibly give. So absolutely not, because what you then end up, you end up populating your board with rich people or people with also contacts with other rich people. You know, it's helpful if you have contacts. Of course, it is. But what's wrong with having contacts in the local community? Mm. What's happened? What happens with you know happening to know the you know the person in the local temple or the mosque or the church who happens to be like a real cheerleader for a particular section of the community. Yeah. So no, never, never, never. If you can afford to give, you should. 
but you should not be required to give and you shouldn't embarrass or shame other people into not giving so no i couldn't i couldn't disagree more so i think that's a that's a, that's a really damaging model in the states having said that i kind of also understand a little bit why because of course we have less of a so we have a big sort of um kind of culture of charitable giving but not philanthropy in quite the same way right. and that's right. largely i think because we have a welfare state so that, so there are actually quite a lot of places i mean badly done otherwise we wouldn't need charities but places that people can go to where the state will support them where they don't have that in the states in the same way so an awful lot of the provision of welfare comes because of wealthy philanthropists giving to charities so you know to a certain degree in the states the welfare state is more underpinned by charity mm. endeavor so you kind of understand why because they need the money but no i think that's a you know it's, it's excluding it's like saying you can only be on my board if you're rich really yeah. yeah exactly so no i completely disagree with that you're a trustee yourself as well as ceo of the directory of social change and I know you've been a trustee for several charities over a number of years. Having read your book, your experience as both a trustee and a CEO shows a rounded view of the possible conflicts and recipe for success between these two roles. Is the model of a board of volunteers ultimately responsible for the successes and failures of a charity? Is it actually fit for purpose, this, this model that we have? Yeah, there's a big debate about this, isn't there? I think, I think uh, yes, as far as it can be. So it's like it's like any governance model. It's like any democracy. You know, we all look at the, our own democracy and say this is rubbish. We need to change it. But you can never find the perfect thing to change it to that satisfies everybody. And it's a bit the same with governance. You know, is the reality is, is that, you know, it's not perfect. It is quite difficult working with a voluntary board of um, trustees. Although I have to say these arguments about paying them have always really puzzled me a bit, because why would a trustee perform better if you paid them? That doesn't make any sense to me. Like you either perform as a trustee or you don't. Me being paid isn't going to make me a better trustee. Sure. So, so I really, I'm concerned about that. The other thing about it is, is that one of the real strengths about voluntary governance. So what we can do as trustees is we can say hand on heart, none of our decisions have been influenced by personal gain. If you're paid as a board of trustees and you've got to look up, for example, a big redundancy programme or cutting services, and you are still taking money out of the charity into your own pocket, what does that say to your credibility, to your donors, to your volunteers and to your beneficiaries? You know, so as a trustee, you'd end up saying that like, I will forego my payment in order to keep this person's salary. It's so much better not to ever be in that place. And people will say that like, I definitely wouldn't be influenced by the fact that I'm paid. You probably maybe you wouldn't be. But whatever you've got in your heart is not necessarily what's going to be perceived by the outside world. So I think a voluntary is difficult and it's challenging but the, honestly any governance structure challenging let's be honest in the private sector where they're all paid to run the businesses at whatever level chairs and non it although they do have some unpaid non-executives but it's very rare isn't it do they not have problems with governance mm. do they not have the chief exec and the chair forming out do they not have you know of course they do because ultimately it's human behavior so there are there are challenges about it being volunteers but you know and also You've got to be really clear. I mean, I'm quite hard-nosed about this. This is a voluntary role. You don't get to say I'm on holiday or that, you know, you know, it's like, uh, you know, it's uh, it's a weekend. It's like it's a voluntary role. So, you know, you find the time to do it. If we need you to be a volunteer at nine o'clock at night, that's what you do. I mean, obviously you don't do that. Do you know what I mean? So I have very little yeah. sympathy with people who say, you know, but I'm a volunteer, you know, I need my own time. It's like, well, don't volunteer for my charity then, please. Thank you very much. I'd much rather have somebody who can manage their time effectively and give to the charity. 
as you say in your book, it's a, it's measuring expectations, isn't it? And, and you, you, there's this, this bit uh, where you're talking about that as kind of an excuse you might get from the the dash um, kind of attributes of you know the negative attributes of a, a trustee, and then you say, well, then you you measure expectations in the in the role description or something, don't you? To say this, how much we expect from you? Yeah, just being really clear, and you can't always like so many days a year and stuff like that. It's you can't always say that because mm. in periods of crisis, for example, this last year, most boards of trustees have been massively, you know, finding hours and times in order to do more work with their charity. So you can't even be like really clear about it. I just say that if you care about the charity, find the time to commit to it. Could we see the battle on the board as a microcosm? A representation of how the charity sector responds to the demands of the charity commission uh, the media and the general public and if so how would you say improving charity governance might improve our sector's ability to better engage and influence these potential partners for change i, I we can't lump them all together so the public are already awesome supporters of charities. You know, this, this constant refrain we've got about the fact that we've got to build public trust and confidence in charities is a load of old bollocks, thank you, Sam. And I'm sorry if you've got to bleep that out or, you know, edit it out. <laughs> we'll keep true. it in. <laughs> the public are not stupid. Not stupid. They understand about the charities that they donate to. They will very often confuse it. So if you say a broad word like charity, the vast majority of the public will instantly call to mind big charities like the RSPCA or NSPCC or something like that. They won't necessarily equate their local hospice or the local youth group or whatever the ha thing happens to be, that, or dementia care or whatever, in, in quite the same way. So when you hear criticisms of stories about charities, much, people never think about the one they donate to or the one they engage with. And so I think it's incredibly naive to like do all these blooming surveys and questions about the public about charities because you, then they don't even know what questions they're actually being asked and answering. It really, really irritates me. It's also about the fact that charities in law are set up to deliver for public benefit, not to deliver what the public want. And the honest truth is if charities only delivered what the public want, probably well over 70% of the charities we've got wouldn't exist. Because the public doesn't really want charities for refugees and asylum seekers or sex workers or, you know, drug addicts or, you know, these are not popular mm. causes. These are not causes that the vast majority of the public will support. So we've got to get that distinction absolutely clear. Your job as a trustee is to, is to um, deliver against your charitable objects to serve your beneficiaries. It is not your job to worry about every other bloody charity or the vast amount of the general public who don't happen to donate to or volunteer for your charity. And that's in law. Whatever the commission says its expectations are of you, it can expect you to blue in the face. It can't do anything because its job is to apply the law and provided you're, you're doing that, then you're fine. So I do think we need to be a bit careful about this. I think that we dishonor the public you know, and, and actually, Sam, if you look at, I mean, okay, the last year was a really weird one, and it's very difficult to be able to sort of measure uh, anything by that. But if you look over 50, 100 years worth of charitable giving, it's incredibly stable. It's largely unaffected by massive economic events or, you know, it's it's largely unaffected by bad news stories about cheap effects pay or whatever. I mean, an individual charity might find itself impacted in the short term by a negative story about its cheap effects pay, but they always bounce back. You know, it's, it's always a short term impact. Somebody was like, say, I'm not going to, you know, pay my donations not going anymore. And then six months later, everybody's forgotten. Everybody comes back again. So, yeah, it's, it's I can't stress this enough. Trustees, your job is to deliver against your charitable objectives 
objects for the purpose of your beneficiaries. That is what your job is to do. And you've got to you test yourself against that all the time is what I'm doing. And of course, you comply with the other bits of law that you need to just focus on your own donors, your own volunteers, your own beneficiaries. Charities working, you know, we work with the public, we work with various stakeholders, we, we, to an extent, work with the Charity Commission, though I know that relationship between a lot of charities and the Charity Commission has been particularly difficult over the last few years. And of course, we've got a new uh, chair of the Charity Commission um, at some point this year. What would be your hopes, I guess, for the next chair of the Charity Commission? Would, would you have any hopes in terms of anything they could take from maybe your book? Maybe, we, you know, Charity Chat might send them a copy of your book when, when we know who it is. Are there, is there anything you, you hope that they would take from that? Obviously, they're not a trustee of charity per se, but they might be. Well, first off, I hope they would have experience in the charitable sector. I hope they would know what it's like to be a trustee. Ideally, at some point in their life, they will have worked for charity whatever direction they, they sort of went, because I always find it really interesting that for some reason or other, we don't think the Charity Commission needs to be run by anybody who understands charities or has ever worked in a charity. It's like you wouldn't ever have a police regulatory authority run by somebody who didn't understand the police. Yeah. You wouldn't have, you know, I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. You, you know, you don't appoint the Chief Justice, somebody who isn't qualified in legal stuff so it makes no point to me to think that you know that the chair of the charity commission shouldn't have experience in the in in the job that they do so i would definitely hope for that i think that it's to do you know i hate to hark back but there were so i've worked with so my first charity commission when i when i started you know, really actively working so i've worked with charities for over 35 years but really actively engaging in this sort of thing was john stoker and he was the last um, leader of the charity commission who was both the chair and the chief executive so the roles were combined. And he's the one who put forward the proposition that they should be separated. And so when he left, his one role was replaced by a role of a chair and a role of a chief executive. And so and I've worked with all, you know, right back to John, who was, who was brilliant. I, you know, I absolutely thought he was fantastic and, and very visionary to like make that change for the commission. Mm -hmm. And then all of the other chairs and chief executives since, apart from this one, Tina, who's just refused point blank to meet me really? or you know, be on a, a panel or anything like that. So um, but in all of that time, I would say that the time when I think that the Charity Commission was most powerful and most effective at engaging with the sector and also get, like, getting the right message across to the public was, was when Andrew Hines was the chief executive and Susie Lever was the chair. Because they, for example, they did a massive amount of work about trying to make the website more open friendly. They did a lot of work about transparency and support. We did masses of work trying to modernise the sort and make it a little more open and transparent. And I would say at that stage, I would have been openly saying to charities, if you ever worried or concerned, just ring the commission. They had a helpline, which was incredibly effective. It was anonymous helpline so that you could ring up and say, look, I, I, do, I don't think my charity is gonna survive. I'm really worried about it going bust. What should I do yeah. without triggering you know, investigations, which was hugely helpful because they were, they were very much seen as somewhere you could go for, to for a source of support. Mm -hmm. The exact opposite is the case now. You know, I, I would, you know, when people come to me now with their worries and troubles, the last thing I'd advise them to do is to go to the Charity Commission for advice, you know, which is an awful place to be. You know, yeah. it, it's because why have they positioned themselves like this? Sam? I don't understand it. But like, I've always been a fan of the Commission. I always have. I think they're an incredibly important, but I still do. Mm. You know, I definitely would, would resist having the Commission abolished. But somehow or other, they've kind of, they've gone on this agenda, which is about populism and being popular and, you know, I mean, Helen Stevenson, the chief executive of the Charity Commission, just gave a speech just, you know, to the ICAEW just recently where she said, you know, 
we're still going to pursue this notion that charity should do what the public wants. You know, it's like, what? where is that coming from? I don't get it. And so as a result of that, they're going to end up with, we're going to end up with more charities getting into trouble unnecessarily because they don't feel confident about going to the commission. Mm. The, the commission's role in prevention is massively diminished because people don't trust them. You know, you have to trust your regulator to be able to say, because, you know, the, the, the regulator says we need to come down hard on rule breakers. Of course they do. But it's exactly like the police. If you think about the police, the police don't just say, right, we're just going to catch you breaking the law. And a massive amount of police work is prevention, is advice, mm. is support. It's a massive amount of police activity goes into working with, actually, people who are likely to cause offence to youth groups and vulnerable groups and things like that to help them to not do that. They are about advice and support about how you can help young people not fall into a life of crime and things like that. And that's surely that's a better service to the public than constantly going out there and like publicly berating charities as somehow we're very naughty. And what annoys me most about it, Sam, is that, yes, of course, we get some people who are behave badly in charities yes we get some people who set up charities fraudulently but on the whole we are way less wasteful less likely to commit crimes less likely to do things that are against the public than anybody in the private sector is going to be and you don't see people going after the private sector in the same way my final question Deborah, is i'm a and I'm I'm coming out here about this. I'm a big fan of ABBA, and I know all of your <laughs> all of the books uh, chapters are uh, kind of started with an ABBA uh, song. What would you say is your favourite ABBA song for the sector? Is there a, is there a song that you feel the sector should be listening to right now? An ABBA song that the sector should be listening to right now? Oh gosh, that's a really clever kind of side swipe of a question, Sam. So <laughs> an ABBA song that I really think, um, oh gosh. I think probably knowing me, knowing you, because I, I genuinely think that understanding each other, our staff, our volunteers, our beneficiaries, like really, really seeing things from the other person's point of view is, is you know, it, the time spent to get to know and understand where people are coming from is never time wasted in my view. So probably that. Deborah Alcock Tyler, thank you for contributing again to Charity Chat. You're so welcome, Sam, and thank you for the nice things you said about the book. I feel really chuffed. I really do. A big thank you again to Deborah Alcock-Tyler for joining us again for Charity Chat. I thoroughly enjoyed Deborah's book. It sits atop the score of books I keep about the charity sector and is by far... I'd say one of the most easily absorbable. It's also reminded me to rediscover some of my favourite ABBA songs. Thank you for the music, Deborah. In this time of SOS, we don't have to be head over heels with our trustees or executive teams to find a common language and mutual respect to best aid our causes and beneficiaries. Understanding one another seems to be the name of the game. So many of us are working flat out at the moment. It's like we're some kind of super trooper and facing our own battle of Waterloo. But just one of us won't be able to right the world's wrongs and not even deliver for the charities we support, no matter how small they are. It may feel sometimes like we are under attack for not raising enough money, 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 or behaving like some self-indulgent dancing queen. The truth is that 
So many of our causes require us to understand others and fundamental to all of this is that people need love. And this extends to the marriage of respect and collaboration that must exist between the board and a charity staff in order for the charity to succeed. We all have a double responsibility here to support our trustees and boards and or executive teams if we're a trustee to perform as well as possible in unity with one another and to add our voice and value to the community of trustees who govern the thousands of charities that seek to improve lives in our community. I hope listening to this you'll either seek to improve yourself as a trustee or be enticed to apply for a trustee role. If you enjoyed this conversation with Deborah, I'd really suggest listening back to episode 88 of the podcast when we spoke with Deborah back in May 2020 about how trustees were coping with COVID-19 and how they could and should be supported. This is so relevant still, sadly, for the times we live in now. So thank you, dear listener, for getting this far with us. We hope you enjoyed this episode and continue to enjoy the podcast. We'd love to hear from you either way. It's just left for me to thank our corporate sponsors, our platinum sponsor, Charity People, for enabling us to share insights, expertise and best practice across our sector. Giant Squid Audio Lab for sponsoring our podcast kit. Magda Aksumit for the beautiful website. Check it out at charitychat.org.uk. Forest of Fools for playing throughout the show and for playing us out right now. That's it from me. Keep on doing what you can. Cheerio. Bye-bye.